Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Hello and welcome to today's edition of HIV Matters. It gives me great pleasure to be able to introduce today's podcast guest, which is also a first for HIV Matters as we're going to be interviewing two guests at the same time. So welcome, Morris Maggington. Morris is a lecturer at the University of Manchester and also a researcher. Now I've worked with Morris for some time now, so I may not be doing his bio justice. Morris has a special interest in HIV, chemsex, and also has previously worked in palliative care. So I'm delighted that Morris agreed to talk to us today about his great work that he's been doing with colleague Jamie. So Jamie Garcia and Glazius, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, although I'm sure it's not as fluent as it could have been. So Jamie is a Mildred Baxter postdoctoral fellow at the Centre of Biomedicine, Self and Society at the University of Edinburgh. Jamie holds a PhD in sociology and has had a background in literature and cultural studies. He specialises in intersectionality and also has worked in HIV care and research also. So I'm absolutely delighted that both our guests today have joined us to share the work that they've been doing during the pandemic, which explores narratives around COVID, HIV and now monkeypox. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of today's show. It gives me great pleasure to introduce and begin our conversation with Jamie and Morris. Thank you for um, agreeing to be part of the show and talk about the great work that you've been undertaking over the past couple of years since we've last spoke. I can't believe where the time's gone. So it's a great, gives me great pleasure to set, share this screen with you both today in this podcast. So I was reading one of your articles that you both had written entitled Viral Times, Viral Memories and Viral Questions. I'll pop the links to the article in the show descriptions for our listeners and I would recommend that you do read, read that article. It was really illuminating when I read it. But I'm just wondering, for our listeners, are you able to tell us a little bit more about your work that you've been involved in? So I think um, this work uh, around HIV and COVID began um, in the very early days of COVID, before uh, before lockdowns and everything, probably February 2020. We were meeting and we realised that we had 
Well, there was a lot to say around the relationships between HIV, AIDS and COVID, but we weren't really sure what there was to be said. Uh, we just knew that there was a, a need to, to speak loudly about what we were seeing. So we got together, we wrote a very short paper for um, the European sociologist, and then we thought, well, there are many other people um, in our networks who want to say things and want to give them the platform to have those conversations. So we started co-editing um, that special issue of culture, health, and sexuality, uh, and the book, which is coming out later next year. But essentially what we thought was, um, it was really interesting how a lot of what we took for granted as knowledge learned from the AIDS crisis was not being applied to COVID. And to us, that revealed not so much that such knowledge wasn't there, but that there was an intentional forgetting of, of the AIDS crisis and what it meant. And that kind of suggests that certain lives and certain deaths do not matter that much in our cultural memory because we were forgetting everything that had happened. Um, so all these headlines about the great or the first modern pandemic, the greatest pandemic since World War, that kind of suggests that really the lives of so many people who died from AIDS did not did not count. Yeah, and I think um, I think for me as well, um, the interesting thing about particularly how that special edition was produced was that these were sort of nascent ideas that both Jamie and I had seen coming up on Twitter, mm-hmm. but. When we were just seeing these ideas, we were still able to meet face to face. But then, really, a few weeks after that, we then went into effectively a two-year lockdown from any sort of international meeting of anyone. Um, and it's been it's been that sort of interesting process of also thinking about how you bring critique together when when you're so distant and so far apart. Um, and yeah, that, that in itself has, has given me things to think about, about, um, how activism has functioned moving into a very different way of having to get messages out, message across, mm-hmm. um, and taking the inspiration from HIV, but then applying it to, to COVID, um, in, in, in very different ways out of necessity so it has also shown that sort of necessity out of invention um and putting together a special edition special edition with with people we some people we've never met um some we had some we haven't um has been has been an interesting process because normally in academia you have you know you, these ideas come up conferences and things um, and most people have met people um but it's been it's been quite a pleasurable experience as well to be creating a network when networks are sort of falling apart and being frustrated. I think also um, Twitter lends itself very much to hot take, you know, publishing a thread and then forgetting about it. Yeah. Whereas what we wanted was to have a space for more sustained conversation and more critical um, engagement that would carefully evaluate the evidence and experience and would not be counted on how many likes they have. So that's what we what we aimed with the with with the book and with the special issue, even though we know that in no way was it quick enough to gather the momentum, we think it's gonna be a, a sustained source of, of engagement for years to come and we hope it will be. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think you've you've mentioned loads of things that I'd just like to pick up on for our listeners. You first of all, Jamie, you mentioned which I think is really important about sort of how in the early days how COVID was being presented about being this the largest pandemic um since you know, and I think you're right, there were a lot of people I was providing support to at the time that were really kind of taken aback and thinking what about me and then there was that um lightning then it seemed to kind of reverse didn't it the lightning to the hiv pandemic i was just wondering if you'd be able to talk a little bit more about that work and maybe any surprises that you you kind of found when you was undertaking that that great collaboration with different people yeah i think um for both maurice and i what we found most striking was in those early headlines with from people who you arguably think are really smart and probably are, like Bill Gates and um, the head of uh, WHO, et cetera, who were talking about this being the first great modern pandemic. Um, even, for example, somebody like uh, Paul B. Preciado arguing that COVID makes you wor- wonder under what conditions life is worth living, when in reality, the profound impacts to intimate life, social life and connectedness were already felt and still are felt uh, by many communities during the AIDS crisis. And the fact that those experiences were not acknowledged, um, let alone learned from for COVID, really revealed to us that there was an intentional uh, forgetting of, of those of those times. And there were, or there may be several reasons why that happened. It could be because some of the people in charge of what arguably was a horrid initial response to AIDS still remains uh, in charge of a response to COVID and now to monkeypox, people like Dr. Fotze in the United States. But also the degree to which the initial um, victims, who could say, of COVID and AIDS couldn't be portrayed as being more different. So you have the homosexuals, heroin users, the immigrants in the case of AIDS, mm-hmm. whereas you, in, in the case of the UK in particular, you have middle-aged, white, wealthy cruise ship passengers who appeared every day on the news for, for weeks uh, around about being stranded off the coast of Japan with COVID. So that really reveals that still very much in this day and age, there are certain lives um, that are worth preserving and are worth saving, and some that don't really matter that much to society at large. And then it was a really sad realisation. Thank you for sharing that. It is really poignant to kind of as I'm sat here kind of reflecting on that. It's, yeah, I can't even find the words of what you to respond to that, Jamie, that some lives are worth preserving and others aren't. That's kind of a real, you know, I don't know, moment of reflection, I guess. I'm just wondering from your point of view, Maurice, is there anything that you'd like to, to maybe articulate around that discussion yeah um i mean i think one of the things it's really taught us is that we don't maybe lives are worth caring for and the infrastructure that we have so what particularly revealed in the uk um was that if somebody became ill and was unable to go to work you know, so they had to quarantine for 10 days or then they were too ill with long COVID. We had no structures to deal with that, um, no financial help whatsoever. Um, but actually, you know, th- these things have these things have existed. Difficulties of uh, people living with a lot of long-term illnesses um, have existed mm-hmm. and we just haven't learned the lessons. 
um, and we haven't learned the lessons that um, that caring for people means that we can care for each other. Um, and I know Gordon Brown the other day on Radio Four said that when we look after the weak, we actually make society stronger. And it's it's actually quite depressing that it it took COVID to bring that to light for society. Um, but I and there was maybe a moment of maybe that lasted a few months in the first year where people felt like yes, we are going to care for each other. Yes, the state cares for us. Um, and these are all the sorts of things that HIV activists were arguing for in the 80s and 90s. We're producing networks of care um, and we're arguing for the state to do, and the state never really got around to doing them. Um, and there was a few months where you kind of had that feeling. Um, but I think, very sadly, that, that has been lost, that momentum has been lost completely um, in the UK. Um, and those structures that we could have had um, to protect people when they are ill from destitution have gone. Um, and just to pick up on the current situation with monkeypox, um, you know, people have to isolate for 21 days. There is no financial assistance for that. We could have built that sort of financial assistance long term into policies and legislation that if somebody is unable to go to work for public health reasons the state will support them and it was a temporary measure and i think that just shows how temporary um the state cares and it only cares for certain people um and if other people get something that means they will end up destitute because they can't work for 21 days the state doesn't really care um, and so it revealed all these problems but the solutions were kind of tragically temporary I was going to say that something which Maurice has touched upon but really came to front during COVID um, is that poverty and inequality are public health issues and they are the public health issues. What we saw with COVID and we're seeing with monkeypox and we saw with AIDS um, is that it is most vulnerable in our communities that are hit the hardest and who have the less access to the resources that they need. Um, and with COVID, we saw that it was the immigrants, those who were in civil employment, those who were in precarious housing, who had a harder time uh, isolating, who had a harder time not passing it on to others and getting the medical help that they needed. So it, thinking about public health as something that we need to treat disease as opposed to a preventative mechanism that should be there to prevent disease in its broadest scope is a profound failure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think obviously reflecting on what what has been said so far, I think you know, Maurice, you touched on something that's kind of brought back memories for me about yeah. At the start of the pandemic, it felt like you know this was a time that we did show up for others. We you know we stepped up. There was calls nationally, wasn't there, for people to volunteer to get older people shopping, prescription, and there was real a real sense of community. Um, but that seemed never really seemed to last it was just a temporary measure and I think people just I don't know it just never it could have been a way that we could have created as you said some longer lasting in infrastructures you know we started to take notice of people around us um but it just like you said it felt temporary and a, a little bit short-lived and, and these things do exist in other countries to 
greater or lesser extents. Um, it's not that it's not doable, um, and it's not that it's not imaginable. Um, there was an absolutely wonderful book that came out really early on during the COVID crisis, um, called which was in my head when I was talking just now, called The Care Manifesto um, by The Care Collective. And that, when I was reading it at those moments when like the world seemed to be caring for each other, I was actually quite positive. I was like, oh, this is, this is happening. Um, but then I was teaching that text um, almost two years later um, to nursing students back in May, and it left me with a very different feeling because what I felt may have been coming into, or, you know, may have been green shoots of some, some sort of care, creating a caring society um, have, have just withered and died um, re- remarkably quickly. We had an opportunity, didn't we? There was that moment in time um, that, unfortunately, we... I mean, there was lots of great, great acts of kindness and humanity that we did see. Mm. But again, it, the window seemed to close very quickly before it was about that scarcity, you know, what's in it for me? What? How can I get more? I mean, and you say we had a moment of opportunity. I mean, like, yes, like people like you, me, Jamie, who realise that care requires infrastructure, by the state um but i think the we that are running the state at the moment don't really believe in that um and again that that replays the issues that we saw with aids that the state just wasn't willing to get involved um and basically as soon as it can divest itself from caring um it has um or 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 it's it's doing the absolute minimum to to not have people out on the streets writing and kicking them out of government. Um, there's not an ideology of caring, it's a kind of reluctance to provide the minimum. Now, I'm mindful that you've both talked um, or alluded to kind of the current crisis. I'm not sure if it's current anymore, um, but it definitely feels very topical on my Twitter feed um, and also different people kind of writing in about this subject. So I was delighted that you were able to to share your ins- insights into this. So we've talked a little bit about monkey parts, and I'm just wondering, have you noticed any similar narratives being played out? Because I guess for me, I was a little bit shocked when I first saw those headlines and that like the targeting of behaviour. So I was just wondering if you could maybe share with our listeners any kind of themes or narratives that are being played out that you've observed. So there are many things. And the first thing um, that always comes to mind is that they wouldn't want to be in the position of anybody with any kind of power at this point because giving a strike or hitting the right message to the right population is very difficult. Um, and we see the statistics out there, and for instance, I organize an event for next week around it, but it's very difficult to acknowledge that MSM, men who have sex with men, are high risk without stigmatizing them. What, what, how do you strike that right balance? That said, I think we are falling uh, down the same perilous path on we did with COVID. So, yes, the images of endless men queuing on to get a vaccine at St. Guy's Hospital in London or in Manchester, they're really appealing. They really make a good image for television or newspaper, but they reveal that there are vast communities that want to do that, that simply want queue for hours to get a vaccine, that want 
get a vaccine unless they are targeted with the specific messages. We are leaving behind, again, those who are most vulnerable, those who do not have access to the NHS, for example, or those who do not have the skills and the capacity or the time to queue for hours to get a vaccine. That's a problem. And the other problem is that we are doing too little and too late. Um, starting to vaccinate now has missed the momentum to prevent a full-fledged outbreak, to prevent it from becoming endemic, potentially, in our communities. And um, we're doing too little because, yes, rolling out or having vaccine doses is important, but if you have vaccine doses and nobody to put them into bodies, then it's useless. And sexual health clinics have been understaffed and overburdened for years. Every month they are at a breaking point. So at some point they have to break and they probably have already broken. Monkeypox is the result. Um, so it's too little, it's too late. Uh, and there's, I mean, I'm not very optimistic about what will happen with it, to be honest. I mean, and I think it's, I think it's another example of, of the state doing the minimum for caring so central government has given zero logistical support to sexual health clinics um, there is no central government infrastructure for monkeypox beyond buying the vaccine that's it they bought the vaccine um, but that's the same with any nhs drug like we have a centralized drug purchasing system in this country um so that that's the minimum um but that has knock-on consequences so because there is no investment in getting the message out what i've seen in manchester and what colleagues have seen in london is that it is the largely white largely educated largely middle class gay men who can who are on twitter um who who can go and who find out about the vaccine and go and get it. Um, now, not obviously not everyone's on Twitter. It's been described as a Twitter-fueled vaccine treasure hunt to me. Um, that's not an acceptable approach to public health. Public health should have public bodies ensuring that the structures to get drugs or vaccines into bodies um, are equitable and we saw exactly the same with prep so the first year rollout of prep um, in scotland and a lot of the data in england showed it was a white man's drug and it shouldn't be we know that so again it repeats those problems because knowledge about the impact trial was never widely disseminated by the state it was just whispers amongst people who had a privileged access to that information because of who they are, because of their education, because of their background. Um, and yeah, and we just aren't seeing the level of support we need from the state to to get it out. And I know, Jamie, you posted um, the data about uh, monkeypox in America disproportionately affecting um, black communities. Now, we haven't seen that in the UK yet, but my concern is that unless we very rapidly address the inequity of vaccine provision, I don't think anyone's even looked at the figures properly yet. But if you looked at the queue at Manchester on Sunday, it was white. I am told there were some non-white people in it, but most of my friends didn't see any, only one person did. So let's, 
we're going to see that epidemic affect certain groups um, disproportionately. Um, and that, that concerns me that the state doesn't really seem to care about that and doesn't seem to be invested in doing anything about that, even though it's really quite obvious that that's the direction we're currently heading in. Um, and I've even had conversations with health commissioners where they think it's quite positive that networks have disseminated it, but are blind to the fact that those networks are very particular ones with very particular connections um, that don't reach wide enough. Um, and there's that power dynamic of, or that near, almost sort of neoliberal, let's leave it to the market, but it's it's just not an equal, it's just not a way to deal with public health. And what I'm hearing from you very strongly, Morris, is obviously touching on the point that Jamie made about um, our sexual health services. And obviously, we, we know I've worked in um, sexual health services for a number of years and seen things that have happened over time. And this idea of targeting communities. And if you're just targeting a community, you kind of often think that the other communities, oh, well, that's not me. Oh, yeah. So don't identify with that as well. So there's lots and lots of issues here. Um, and I agree, I'm really concerned about how this will play out in the UK as, as it unfolds really. Yeah, Jamie, you mentioned previously about your book. Are you able to share a little bit more about your book for our listeners? Uh, yeah, so you mean the COVID book? Although knowing you, you may have another book up your sleeve. <laughs> so um, what we realized when we were publishing the special issue um, earlier this year was that many of the things that we were talking about and the authors were talking about were long past. We were responding to the first few months of the pandemic, before vaccines, before uh, antivirals. So we knew that things had to change and things were changing. And we wanted to also portray that longer term thing where maybe it seems less like hey less like AIDS because there isn't that momentum of people dying around us but we still felt there were many interesting parallels so we got together and we um conducted the same authors but also new people some of them great long-term historians of hiv and aids and we're preparing a book uh with i think around 13 14 um authors that talk about the What's the longer term comparisons between HIV and COVID with uh, vaccines and with the changes to society that COVID has brought about? Things like the protests against mandatory masking or against mandatory vaccines, um, the longer term implications of, of COVID for our health systems and our care systems. Um, we are now in the process of pulling together all those authors, getting them to write, and hopefully in the next few months we'll start getting some abstracts and drafts, and hopefully will be published uh, mid-year, next year. Um, we'll see, but it's very exciting to also see that, you know, it's not just us doing a hot take three months after COVID, but it's an ongoing critical engagement um, because this pandemic is here to stay, uh, both in our lives and in our, in our history. I think the other thing I'd mention about the book is that the, the, the special edition journal was, as we've said, pre-vaccine, but it was also a relatively narrow range of countries. They were all, um, 
I think American. Did we have any Canadians in the first in the special edition? I don't remember. Probably not. I, th- I think I think it was basically it was America and Europe. Um, I don't think there's any Canadians. Um, and of, obviously, like COVID has been a worldwide thing, um, and the book will be um, much more representative of that, drawing in kind of perspectives from um, Asia, Latin America, um, Africa. Yes, did we? Did those all? Oh, yeah. But um, so it, it will be. A, it will be a, um, cover more continents and more countries and more cultures, um, which yeah, which is important. To Kind of have that conversation about how culture affects um, health and policy, and um, and the, some of the inequalities that we we saw. Um, you know, we, we the UK was the first country to be vaccinating people, um, and we've given boosters. And there are still some countries who simply don't have that level of um, vaccination cover. For, again, for reasons that are quite complicated. Um, in some cases, but um, vaccines, just as HIV medications, opened up a whole new set of inequalities. Um, and I think we're hoping to sort of look at that divergence on a longer term basis, as Jamie said, um, and a more a more a more global basis. Thank you for sharing that great work, and we'll definitely be um, signposting our listeners to that that great book um, when when you let me know it's been published. So thank you for sharing that. You also alluded to the fact that you was working on another project or other projects because I know you're both very busy. Um, I was wondering if you'd be able to share any of your projects with us for our listeners, please. Okay. So I mean, um, my kind of my current major project um, is writing about. Chemsex, um, and the book is called the Moral Lessons of Chemsex, and basically it's the result of two years worth, a little bit more than two years worth of longitudinal interviews with gay men, um, and then looking at the kind of cultural representations of chemsex in films, in novels, in plays, and trying to think what chemsex can teach us about the ethics and morals of living and so often it's kind of couched in terms of moral panic but it's my argument that actually chemsex can um, teach us and help us critique maybe some aspects of the world that we just take for granted so how we deal with trauma um, how we how we use our bodies um, how we um, interact in kind of late capitalism um, various things that and actually saying well chemsex does have some ways and some subcultural ways of dealing with these things that are potentially um better ethically than um than what we have in kind of mainstream culture um i've only written two of those chapters so far so it's, it's still a work in progress <laughs> two of seven gosh i was just I'm just here hanging on you every word, Morris. I'm like, can't wait to read this. It's going to be a proper page turn. <laughs> I, I can't wait to read it either. It's going to be, yeah, it'll be good when it's something that's readable rather than in my head. So once all these thoughts are out on your head, I would love to invite <laughs> you back um, onto the show to talk more about that. Um, but yeah, it sounds fa- absolutely fascinating. You've you've kind of mentioned loads of things that I'm really looking forward to reading more about. So thank you for sharing that. Jamie, can I invite you to tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing or about to undertake? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, my monograph is coming out in September. Um, it's called The Eroticizing of HIV, Viral Fantasies, and kind of looks at the role that sexual desire and sexual pleasure play in gay men's health decision-making around HIV prevention and treatment. So both PrEP, testing, and uh, PEP, and ARVs. Um, it's the product of three years of interviews with gay men who eroticized in one way or another HIV, and it looks at how we conceptualize these kinds of desires, how they sit within the history of HIV, in, both from the 80s, some of my participants were in their 60s, and their 70s to a very contemporary, contemporary age, and the role of the internet um, in the history of HIV in the current world. Um, and then after that, um, we're also working in Manchester on a project around the impact that dating apps have had on, um, on health and well-being during COVID. We are comparing LGBT people and heterosexual people. And we have some questions as well about HIV, about monkeypox, access to information, but mostly around their impact on loneliness, on well-being, on social connection, and on risk-taking. Um, so the results of that will be coming through over the next year, hopefully. Thank you so much. Again, another another lot of work that I'm, I look forward to reading. That sounds absolutely amazing. I love the the, the thoughts behind the monologue and also the, the dating apps. You know, that's massively changed the way we interact on in, in the dating world. And it'll be really interesting to see the work that comes out from that thank you both so much i've missed our conversations i feel enlightened as a result and i can't wait to read more about the work that you're doing so this is part of the show that i really enjoy and it's part of the show where we get to know you as guests a little bit better so are you able to share with us i'll go to morris first are you able to share with our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care um i do a lot of cycling um and I actually it was something that um changed during COVID um because there was not really any other option for exercising. Um and so the minute we were allowed out, which was really one of Boris Johnson's gaffes when he was seen cycling at the Olympic Park, um and they said, Oh well yes, so long as your exercise starts and finishes at uh, at your home then it's fine. So I just went out cycling into the Peak District. I don't live that far from the Peak District. Um, so it's kind of a half hour cycle into it and then just spent literally all day out. Um, and that's something that I've sort of maintained um, since. Um, a little bit less this year maybe, but um, yeah, I think that's the main self-care things um, that I've that COVID changed. Jamie, what about yourself? Uh, I'm not great at doing self-care. I'm really bad at it. Um, um, I would say probably um, going to the gym routinely has, has helped. And also some of those mindfulness uh, apps, um, I think better health um, has been somewhat useful. Uh, and better blockers, which is self-care as well. So, yeah, no, it's been okay. Thank you. So different ways there to look after your well-being. So yes. thank you for sharing. 
So Jamie, perhaps I could come to you first. Can you share share with us a book that you have been reading lately? Yes. So the last book uh, I read and very much enjoyed was called uh, Las Malas or The Bad Ones. It's from Camila Sosa Villar, who's an Argentinian author. And she writes this sort of chronicle of a trans community living on the outskirts of Buenos Aires, who's um, between magical realism and a historical thing, but very short, very engaging, and really, really good. Sounds wonderful. Thanks for sharing. Marius, what about yourself? Yeah, so I, I have it here. Not that I'd actually prepared this, but it just happened to be next to me. Um, so I'm currently reading um, Preciado's, um, who Jamie referenced earlier, um, Testo Junkie. Oh. Um, it, I mean, it's an absolute sort of scream of a read. It's it's about thinking of how power functions in society um, in post World War Two. I think is really the cutoff point. Um, so he talks a lot about how Foucault considered power to function through institutions, um, and this is thinking about how power functions through. Um, the digitalization of sexuality, so particularly pornography, um, but then also the, the molecularization of sexuality um, and pleasure as a whole um, through things like Viagra um, and other drugs um, and, and and how that disciplines subjects um, because those things are turned into commercial products on a global scale that forms who we are. Um, it's also a almost heartbreaking, um, what's the word? Um, you could call it a love letter to a friend who died. It starts with their death. Um, and it, for me, it's a really interesting perspective on how to, um, react to trauma in a way that doesn't close down possibilities for living. Um, beautiful book. Um, but you kind of just have to go with it. It's the second time I've read it. I read it quite a few years ago. Um, but you, you just have to kind of subject yourself to it and get into it um, for like, you know, sit and read it for the whole day. Um, but yeah, it's not, a, it's not a novel, but it's sort of part memoir, part theory. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to be busy when I've had this conversation with you two today. Oh, I'm be busy looking all great stuff up. So thank you for sharing that. Finally, um, probably go to Maurice first. This is the magic wand question. So it might give you a little bit of time, Jamie, to think about what your magic wand question may be. So if time, money, resources weren't an issue, what would you like to change or be seen done differently? And bearing in mind, this is a massive magic wand, and my only wish is that I could have one of these. Um, but what would you like to, to see changed or done differently? I, I, I think I would opt for something along the lines of um a universal basic income um because i think that would mean no one in the world's fifth richest country um would have to worry about being destitute um so i know there's lots of other policies changes that would have to happen to make it a reality yada 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 but um i think that would be my my envisionment that nobody goes without housing, food, heating, um, and enough money to live 
you know, to have a livable life. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think that's obviously really important that all those things you've mentioned. And I, I really loved the idea that you had on the engine that enough money to have a livable life because sometimes we have those basics on that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's really kind of being able to live with the life you've got as well. So thank you for sharing that. Jamie, what would your magic wand question be? I mean, it's hard following after that lavish yeah. use of politician <laughs> um, um, I would say probably some, I'm going to be slightly more selfish and um, Maurice knows me that that's because <laughs> I'm not a nurse, so my altruistic capacities are very limited. Um, I would say probably something along the lines of making academia a livable um, possible career. I've seen over the past you know, three years, so many of my colleagues who've left academia and who had great ideas, great capacity, and who doesn't want to make a life out of crumbs of funding here and there without any sort of stability. So I think making it possible would be potentially that first step towards Maurice's uh, idea of really assessing what it is that our society needs, um, what works, what doesn't. But if we don't have the base research to do that, then um, we can't advance. Thank you. Great. Great wishes, guys. Thank you. And thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed my time with you, as always. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your research and ideas with us today at HIV Matters. I'm hoping you both agree to come back soon and share more of your work with us. Thank you. For sure. It's been great. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.